Stay hungry, stay foolish. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show a pioneer in machine learning for over 40 years, Professor Naftali Tishby of the Benin School of Engineering Computer Science. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I saw a fantastic talk by you in Berlin, and you've made a, a huge discovery about machine learning and deep learning in, in machines. I'd love to share that with our audience a little bit later, but it'd be great to talk a little bit about you first, Naftali, because you've worked in this field for such a long time. And, you know, it's such a a recent field to so many of us, but you've been in this for a very, very long time. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about you and your background in this field? All right. I was born and, and still live in uh, Jerusalem in Israel, and I, I, I was educated as a physicist. I did my PhD in statistical physics in the 80s. And at about that time, the whole field of uh, machine learning and neural networks emerged during the late 80s when I was a postdoc at, uh, at MIT and, and later a member of technical staff at Bell Labs in, in, in New Jersey in the U.S. And this was exactly the place and the time where people started to think about uh, both these uh, new uh, concepts started to merge together. I mean, what we now call neural networks were essentially born then as some sort of machines that mimic the brain in some sense by constructing a neuron-like uh, elements, which are actually very simple uh, gate system, which essentially just uh, multiply and add elements from different neurons in, in, in many, many layers. And actually, at, at that time, in the, in the 80s, we were thinking about one or two layers uh, neural networks. And, and this was really the beginning of this field. I mean, between 82 and 88, when I was in my PhD and then in the U.S., and at the same time, people started to think about learning as, as a formal uh, structure. I mean, mathematically, uh, give some theorems about what can be learned and what cannot be learned in general. So, so this, it was a very, very exciting time. I mean, people started to think about memory in, in these terms of networks of neurons and about learning from examples and learning both in humans and machines as in some sort of analogy to, to brains or, or to what we understood about neural networks in brains. And at that time, I mean, what we now call the connectionist, uh, the first connectionist time actually was already a repetition of this line of ideas. The very beginning of this was actually in the 50s and 60s of the last centuries, uh, where, where, where the, this concept of the formal neuron was uh, invented or discovered even in the 40s, I mean, by McCulloch and Pitts. And then uh, later on, uh, people like Rosenblatt and, and, and uh, who actually introduced this notion of perceptron, which was essentially one neuron, and suggested it as a, as a pattern recognition device. And this was actually ruled out at the beginning by people like Minsky and Papert in the 70s, who said that many layers of this thing can never work. In the 80s, some people independently, in particular Jeff Hinton and, 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 and Jan Lacuna, was actually at Bell Labs, with me at the same time, discovered that using a very simple uh, rule of, uh, of uh, derivatives, you can actually train such many layers by simply taking derivatives of functions of functions of functions that we all learn in high school. And essentially, they invented an algorithm called the backpropagation or error backpropagation to train such 
layered networks on, 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 uh, in, with many different layers. And this was the really when I got excited with these ideas because it was some sort of a, of a combination of what I knew from statistical physics and from the theory of nonlinear dynamical system. That's what I did before. And, and then there, there was some sort of a mystery. I mean, first of all, okay, what can be learned with such devices? And, and how they actually do it. I mean, how is it that so many parameters, so many tunable parameters can can really uh, mimic or learn complicated functions with relatively small examples, small number of examples. And, and at that time, the, the basic mathematics of what we now call machine learning or computational learning theory uh, was also developed and evolved, and I was also involved in that. I mean, so we were thinking together about three different directions. I mean, first of all, how do you understand the behavior of such big networks? What are, second was, what are the fundamental mathematical limits on what can be learned and what can't be learned, and from how, uh, well, both in terms of number of examples and in terms of computation, how, many, how much power you need, how much, uh, how much uh, cycles, how much time you need in order to compute and so on. And there was also the issue of the brain itself. I mean, neuroscience, and we try to understand biology. I mean, not only learning in machines, but learning in, in animals and in humans. Anyway, the whole thing evolved in really more or less parallel direction during the 80s and 90s. One of them was really taking it back to computer science and to artificial intelligence or AI. So this was essentially the second phase of AI. So this notion of machine learning really completely transformed the, what used to be called artificial intelligence so instead of being uh, formal machines which are rule-based and designed and programmed by humans, and we move to this notion of machine learning where essentially you just show examples to a machine like images or, or, or text or, or, or sound or voice, and, and the machine itself learned the, the rule. So this was a very big uh, change in the way we thought about artificial intelligence and computer science. And uh, this actually happens mostly in the late 80s and 90s. In the 90s, by the way, I came back to Israel after being 60 years in the States. I came back from Bell Labs and, and got this position as a professor at the Hebrew University in starting in 92. And I was actually the first to start uh, academic research in machine learning in Israel. I was lucky enough to be at that point at that time. And also at these years, exactly, we started our, our brain institute or our computational neuroscience center which I was one of the founders and I headed it for, for several years. So essentially, this was some sort of a combination of really three different directions. My, my theoretical physics background, this uh, emergence of machine learning in computer science and in, in, in artificial intelligence, and the understanding of the brain using uh, neural networks or neural circuitry. These three uh, different directions essentially transformed my life completely. And I, I found myself really sitting in between these three disciplines, physics, uh, computer science, and biology, and I'm still there. It's amazing because that intersection and that cross-fertilization of different skill sets and different disciplines is something that we see on this show so often where, you know, you have a kind of a Jobs and a Wozniak where two people come together. But in a way, you're, you've been so fortuitous to have had these disciplines and intertwined them because when I think of, and I've read all about you and watch your YouTube videos, you understand implicitly the brain and how connections work in the brain. And then it's almost like 
that's one lens you look through and then you add on your second lens which is understanding the machine and how the machine learns and then the third one is your your physicist lens it's that unique view through those three lenses that gives you this view of the world which has led you to some some of the breakthroughs you have seen but i'd love to just hone in on one thing naftali which is how does the interconnection right so so the the brain learns through connections how can we for our audience let them understand how that is similar to how a machine learns? So first of all, I must say that I don't understand the brain and I don't think anybody can say today that we fully understand the brain or how it works. I mean, this is still the big, uh, the big enigma and one of the biggest uh, challenges that we face now in science in general. But we do know that the, the brain or the central nervous system and, and our cortex in particular uh, is made out of many, many neurons, which are those cells that have this ability or tendency to connect with other cells through what we call the synapses, so a connection between between neurons. So, so neurons are very special cells that require this connection to other cells, and they do it not because they need the energy or, or oxygen or anything like this. They do it because they need something else completely different, which is actually information. The blood vessels get to any cells in our brain and and bring it the oxygen and, and the sugar and everything that it needs. So the reasons they connect is for entirely different reasons. They really create connections between neurons in order to eventually do something which biologists don't know anything about, which is really what we now call information processing. And information processing is everything that we, we call cognitive functions, like learning, memory, decision-making, planning. All these functions are done by essentially by making different connections between neurons. So that's why we call it connectionism. So every neuron in our, in our cortex, in our brain, is essentially connected with thousands of other neurons. And, and together they're making a, a, a network or a big mesh of, uh, of uh, those cells, and they connect by essentially sending electric signals or, uh, or charged molecules, which we call neurotransmitters, uh, between, between the cells. So, so the big mystery, so we understand this physiology pretty well. We know how those cells look. There are many different types of nerve cells and, and they, they all have very different peculiarities, but in, essentially they behave in a very similar way. They, they, they connect with each other and send signals, uh, electric or chemical, chemical and electric signals. And, and this huge machine somehow miraculously is, is enabling uh, our intelligent behavior and, and all our cognitive functions. This idea that the brain is nothing but a big network of neurons connected with each other uh, is, is, has been around for, for a rather long time. I mean, you actually know it. We know something about it from the very beginning of the 20th century, but we more or less understand how this can, this can uh, function exactly from that time that I mentioned before. I mean, we understand how memories can be formed by neural networks like this, uh, even, and we actually can, could form models which are physical, physics-like models of memories, uh, like the Hopfield model of memory, which is essentially uh, just how those neurons, through by establishing connections, which are essentially random connections between them, trained by some very weak uh, type of supervision, can essentially form uh, associative memories uh, and, and can learn uh, uh, rules and things like this. So this this happens. This type of understanding actually happens in parallel both by neuroscientists who understood that the connection between neurons is very, very important to form for, for behavior, 
and by computer scientists and physicists in different ways. I mean, physicists really uh, created or, or thought about models, mathematical models, which were completely analogous to, to what we what physicists do in, in condensed matter physics, in solid state physics, and understanding a complex matter, which is made out of many, many atoms or molecules. But the same type of ideas, the same machinery that was used for statistical mechanics to understand the, uh, the, the, what is solid, what is uh, liquid, what is gas, and so on in, 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 in condensed matter, uh, the same ideas exactly were applied to these neurons and the connection between them. And at the same time, in, in a rather different track, Computer science has simply mimicked it in some sense by establishing what we call artificial neural network. So as I said, this all started in the 80s, but essentially went through different transformations in the 90s. I mean, where computer scientists and machine learning people essentially devised their own machine learning <clears throat> devices, which were got slightly or very different from, from the biological brain. And, and the neuroscientists uh, continue to develop their own models of, of memory and learning and behavior. And what really happened quite, quite uh, remarkably in the late 90s and early 2000s is that these two things came back together through this notion of uh, deep neural networks, which is essentially, again, uh, insisting that the idea is correct and we should, it should, we should make it work. The same idea of layered neural networks that just added many more layers. So in, in the late uh, 2000s, uh, 2008, 2009, uh, again, the same people like Jeff Hinton and Yann LeCun and many of their collaborators, uh, Joshua Benjo and others, uh, essentially showed that with, if you add many, many layers to the networks and make them much larger in terms of number of connections and much larger in terms of the size of data that they can turn, of course, this could happen only because computers became much more powerful at that time, orders of magnitude more powerful. So everything was put together again in the, in the late 2000s. Suddenly, those layered networks with many, many layers, tens of layers, or even now hundreds of layers, or even more, suddenly started to beat all the other uh, algorithms, all the other machine learning ideas that we, we worked with on, on, on tasks like uh, vision or image object recognition, vision, uh, speech recognition, language understanding, and, and many, many other things. And since then, I mean, those deep neural networks started to to win things like, you know, the Go game or the uh, Atari games, I mean, DeepMind in, in England, and so and so many other things which were in the, in the past considered like challenges for AI that will, which we expected to take many, many more years to win. I mean, I mean the, chess, uh, the chess game was won essentially in 1997, by the, by the IDM Blue, Blue, Blue Brain, which was essentially a, a, a very special, special-oriented device, which was not made of anything like deep learning. It was essentially just a big, logical, exhaustive search of, of, of many, many moves of chess. And this, this was the machine that eventually won the Kaspar. Of course, there was a lot of ingenuity that went into the design of this machine, but this was a special-purpose machine for winning chess. What is yeah. interesting about deep learning, uh, all this new concept of many, many layers, is essentially this, it's, it's the same algorithm, or exactly the same design that was capable of, of tackling many, many different problems. Essentially, if you, if you trained it to, to do face recognition, essentially just by exposing it to enough images of faces, uh, eventually it became very good at face recognition or, or in the 
if, if you train the same machine to do flower recognition or to do dogs recognition or to do astronomy or to do particle physics, I mean, essentially the same architecture, the same type of machine, just have to retrain the parameters. At least that's what it looks. I mean, the, the architecture was more or less universal with some tweaks and, and hacks and all sorts of ideas, more layers, less layers, some wider layers, some different connectivities, some all sorts of hacks on, on how to uh, pacify the network, how to control it better, essentially. But eventually, when you train it with enough examples, they seem to perform very well on many, many different types of questions. Now, this was the, the state of the art or the state of this field in the late uh, 2000s. Uh, and and it it was really quite a, quite first of all very remarkable. I mean, it, it really put aside many many other algorithms and technologies which were developed by by different people for many many years in signal processing or in, in vision or in computer vision or in, in many many fields that there was a lot of knowledge that suddenly became super superfluous. I mean, people simply didn't need it. Uh, this was very frustrating. At the same time. We still we didn't really understand why this type of architectures and machines are so are so powerful, are so useful. What is it in them that that makes us so successful on so many different problems? So it wasn't clear on many on several le levels. One of them is that it wasn't clear why they don't what we call overfit. I mean, how is it that so many parameters? I'm talking about millions of parameters, tunable parameters, and relatively. Fewer examples, many, many fewer examples, hundreds of thousands of images and millions of parameters, and it still seemed to be enough. I mean, somehow they worked very well, despite the what we used to call the curse of dimensionality. I mean, this didn't require an exponential number of examples or not even a, a, something which is of the same order as the number of parameters. So this was a, a remarkable a riddle, a puzzle. I mean, what's actually going on there? Why is it not overfitting? The second question was, do we know that in any sense these machines are optimal or very good or better than other machines? How could we compare them to anything else? I mean, what is the optimal devices? So there was a, there was a riddle about how good they are compared to other things. I mean, was there any reason to believe that those neural networks are actually the best possible machines or or optimal for the task, or anything like this. The second or the third riddle was really what what determines the architecture. I mean, do we need when do we need many layers? When do we need few layers? What do the layers represent? I mean, is there any way of interpreting the neurons or the layers in such machines in in in, in any reasonable way? I mean, what do they actually learn? So it was really a, a whole a big mystery. So the whole thing was a big riddle for for theoreticians like me. And, and uh, okay, so a lot of people, uh, uh, I mean, took this challenge. I mean, so there's some sort of uh, undeclared competition among, among many researchers in the world <laughs> trying, trying to understand, the, the, to break this, uh, this riddle, I mean, uh, the, this puzzle. I mean, what's, what's the, the secret of, of deep neural networks? Why they are so powerful? Why they seem to tackle so, so many different problems? And actually, they fail. I mean, on some problems, they do quite miserably. And it wasn't really clear what separates the problems on which they work and the problems on, on which they fail. There were many, many questions that for theoreticians was very, very unsatisfying and still is an unsatisfying uh, uh, area. Okay, so for me, uh, I mean, as I said, I mean, I've been in this area for 30 years or more. I mean, actually, I started to think about this type of 
of questions, uh, I'm a little ashamed to say, but it was already in the 70s. Uh, and I, when I first tackled and uh, started to work on speech and speech recognition, and I, 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 uh, which was ver a very fundamental uh, problem in, uh, in artificial intelligence at the time, in how do we build machines that understand speech. And, and already while thinking about speech, I, I realized that there's some deeper uh, question there, which is really how do you tease off the, the relevant components of the signal from the irrelevant components of the signal. So when, you, when I talk to you, for example, now, I speak in a very strange accent, and I, I guess many of our listeners probably have problems following my accent. And, and, and it's, it's because, okay, because I have a different... Uh, Speech production apparatus, which was trained in a different language and a different environment. But eventually, what most people are able to do after a few minutes is to adapt the, the hearing system to my accent in some sense. So they get rid of all these irrelevant, uh, uh, you know, uh, strange uh, uh, sounds that I make and eventually get out the, the content and the words. I mean, so that's something which we all do. And I was wondering, I mean, what is it that allows us to really squeeze out those relevant pieces of the signal, which actually is very little, <clears throat> there's a lot, there are a lot of irrelevant, a lot of irrelevant information in speech. I mean, in order to actually make a full recording of my voice now, you need something like uh, hundred thousand bits per second. But actually, my con the content of my 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 speech is is only maybe hundred or even less, ten, few tens of bits per second. So there's a huge redundancy. I mean, there's wow. a huge. I need to somehow squeeze these hundred thousand bits into hundred bits in order to actually and get rid of all the ninety nine thousand uh, uh, irrelevant bits. The character and the depth of what makes you you is actually wasteful in a in a computer world. Yes, I mean so there's a lot of data there, a lot of bits as we say, which are simply not not necessary. The only problem is, I mean, just like think of, about an image. I mean, I show you an image of a face and I ask you, who is this person? There is no single pixel in the image or even a few pixels in the image which will answer this question. I mean, the, when you look at it, you either recognize it or not. Is it you or not you? But it's not, it's highly distributed all over the image. So there's no single pixel or single bits or, that I can pick up and, tell, and answer this question. So it's the same problem with speech. I mean, so this this relevance uh, detail are spread all over in in a very in a very obscure way. And and the the miracle of deep learning and the miracle of machine learning in general is the ability to somehow synthesize or extract those relevant bits out of the many irrelevant bits. Now this problem has, has been with me for for many many years. In a sense, it was. Uh, uh, some aspect of the topic of my PhD already in the in the in the in the late 70s and 80s when I worked on these questions. So so essentially, it's, and I've been with it really since 1975 or 76 with this type of question. So I've been thinking a lot a lot about it, and eventually, we, we I came together with many other people and a lot of my students to, to, to some sort of formalization of this notion. I really wanted a mathematical principle, one mathematical principle, which can tell you. What is the general answer to the question? What is relevant and what is irrelevant in in this in in, in a in a signal or in a in a in, a, in an image or in a very complicated uh, collection of bits like this? And it turns out that this 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 fundamental question of what is the relevant aspect of a signal, first of all, it echoes or it 
resonate, resonate with many other questions in science. I mean, it's actually a really such a fundamental question that you can find it in, in statistics, of course. Uh, and this is a fundamental issue in statistics uh, in general. I mean, it's, it, it is in physics, it is in biology. Physics, for example, this notion of extracting the relevant structure from data has been with us for a long time. Essentially, all of physics, I mean, the laws of physics, Newton's laws, for example, are some sort of simplifi simplification that really captured the, the important, the essence of, of the complex behavior of nature. So, I mean, science in general is about extracting these simple aspects of, of complex phenomena. So, so this, is, this, is, this is really a, a, what, what I call a fundamental question. And surprisingly, there was no formal answer, mathematical answer or algorithmic answer to this question in general. I mean, how can I extract the relevant aspects from a complex variable? And this, this has been with me, really without exaggerating, since the late 70s. Around the, the, in the mid-80s, when I worked at Bell Labs, I started to think about this problem of extracting the relevant part uh, as, uh, as an optimization problem. And uh, this optimization problem, uh, uh, I don't want to get into details, but essentially uh, there was some sort of a trade-off between complexity and accuracy that you could play, and actually is very similar to, to many other algorithms that somehow compress data in a noisy way, in a lossy way. I mean, somehow I don't save all the information, I save most of it. And, and eventually during the 90s, and we were able to formulate this in a very, very elegant way, which is essentially a trade-off between two terms. One is the information that you preserve about the input, and the other one is the information that you want to retain on, about the output. And this has been with me since the late 90s in, a very, in this precise formulation. And I've been playing with this idea since then with many of my students on many different problems from speech to music to, to text analysis to, uh, to bio, molecular biology to, to brain science, of course. So this has been with us for a long time. And I, I always knew this is a fundamental idea, but we really were looking for a good application. There were applications in neuroscience, there were applications in, in machine learning, applications in, in, in bioinformatics, there were applications in... In, in, in linguistics and so on, but none of them seem to make a, you know, what what uh, Natalie called a, a killer application. Now, when deep learning uh, surfaced again, uh, the the whole uh, this of course resonates with these ideas very clearly. But what was nice about deep learning is the this the existence of so many different layers, and and there was no theory that I knew at the time that could that really address the the layers the the, the role of those different layers separately. The, the more, most of the theories of deep learning talk about them as as one big black box in some sense, uh, where you put input and get output. And and I thought, okay, those layers are not actually have a very nice structure. I mean, each one is just feeding the next one. This is something which we call in mathematics a Markov chain. I mean, so it was a chain of, of variables that were fed to each other in a feed-forward way. And this immediately resonated to, to me with this uh, notion of extracting relevant in a, in a hierarchical sequential way. So the idea of how to extract relevant information, I, I called it the information bottleneck uh, technique. It was we actually formulated it as some sort of squeezing a lot of information through a narrow bottleneck. 
and get out only the relevant parts of it. And then we had in, in around four years ago, I started to think about more seriously. Uh, I had uh, a little more time because I, I went through some all sorts of, of uh, treatments then and, and essentially uh, managed to have this uh, very clear picture in my head that uh, there is a, a, a essentially one-to-one correspondence between what happens in the layers and what happened in the bottleneck formulation. And since then, all we did, I mean, with two of my students, Noga Zaslavsky and, and Ravid Schwarz-Ziv, we really uh, just formulated it more clearly and then did a lot of experiments. Those numerical experiments with Ravid in the last uh, year and a half or two years essentially clarified the picture completely. So, so first of all, all we did, we need to, well, I had this very simple idea. I mean, if, if it's the information about the output and information about the input, which really matters, then why don't we look at how these two values behave in a deep neural network? And, yeah. uh, and uh, essentially, so we looked at, of course, there, there's some technical issue here. We can't really do it with very large networks because we need uh, a lot of statistics. We actually need to measure, to measure the information that the, a layer retain on the input and the output. You need uh, to estimate some high dimensional distribution. So, so we did it on a small, small network, not very small with a few hundreds parameters. And then we did these experiments and simply plotted these uh, figures, I mean, the information about the input versus the information about the output uh, as, as, uh, for each of the layers during the training of a deep neural network. And then suddenly we, we saw those nice pictures, which are also in this uh, Quantum Magazine uh, article, that something quite striking happened during the training. But essentially, all the layers are doing are moving through a very, very special type of trajectories. They first inc- go up in, in terms of increasing the the information to the label or the output, and then they they move to the left, uh, and uh, in the sense of compressing the representation. So they we discovered that as this two distinct phases of learning. This was a numerical discovery. Uh, which actually took me a little bit by, by surprise. So first of all, we, we realized that really looking at the networks in this uh, plan of information about the input and the output is, is a very good idea because it clarified it immediately. It was just like an X-ray. I mean, this this black black box was suddenly become visible. I mean, I knew what's going inside. But then there was this puzzle. I mean, what is creating these two phases of learning? I mean, the what we now call the memorization or the 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 fitting phase of the of the labels, and then this what I call the compression phase or the the generalization phase where the network actually forgets. And uh, uh, so now, I mean, we po- if you want to popularize it, it's really two phases. The first one is memorizing the data, but then the second phase is what we call the forgetting phase, is where you you ignore or you learn to forget the irrelevant details of the data. This is exactly the compression phase, and this was exactly the main idea of the bottleneck, uh, of the information bottleneck, that uh, that in order to keep the relevant, you need to throw away the irrelevant. This is this is the notion of, a, of uh, the information bottleneck concept. And uh, what was striking is that it fit like a, a glove to, to the problem of deep neural networks. I mean, so... Essentially, now I suddenly had the, the, the mathematics that describes what's happening during this uh, uh, training, this backpropagation uh, gradient descent that everybody is using in, in, uh, in uh, deep learning was suddenly 
uh, got a, a new meaning in terms of uh, memory and, and forgetting or, or compression and, and fitting the data. And we actually found the mathematics that not only tell us why is it good for the layers, but exactly how this stochastic gradient descent, how this particular algorithm that we use to train deep neural, neural networks is actually working and, and moving you through these two this through these two phases. So suddenly this analogy or this correspondence between deep neural networks and, and the information bottleneck uh, idea uh, actually makes sense for both both of these concepts. Suddenly it's very obscure and very abstract idea of uh, extracting relevant information become very concrete when you put it in the context of deep neural networks. And on the other hand, it gives the deep neural networks a very concrete mathematics or theory that allows us to actually understand what's going on inside. The next phase was really trying to, okay, so let's, so we understand more or less why they work so well. I mean, actually we have concrete mathematical predictions that tell you why essentially these huge number of parameters don't hurt you because essentially you, you use them to, to eliminate the noise and most of them are actually carrying random numbers, essentially what we call diffusion or, or random walks, which essentially govern this, this uh, training behavior. So this was a completely new uh, observation. I mean, this, and this is really what makes the, the big news now, because uh, this was a very different way of thinking about uh, neural networks than anything that was done before, both in terms of visualizing it and understanding actually the role of the layers. Because if it's... If all this learning is really governed by diffusion, essentially random walks in some very high dimensional space, then you suddenly understand, and I have a complete theory of this, uh, how the layers uh, uh, play uh, and help you. Essentially, you, you, they break down this diffusion into parallel pieces, and instead of having one, one very slow diffusion, they, each layer is making its own diffusion in parallel, and this, this is boosting the computation time uh, exponentially. So every layer is really giving you, like adding engines to, to a train. I mean, essentially it's boosting the training parallel. So this was another direct result of this uh, correspondence or this mapping of the theory to the deep neural. It immediately explained several things. I mean, first of all, why do you, you don't overfit? Why such a few number of examples uh, are enough to, even for very large models, Second, it, it gives you an answer to this puzzle. I mean, how do the many layers help you? And it turns out that most of the benefit of the hidden layers is computational. I mean, there may be other benefits in terms of expressing more complicated functions, but I don't believe this is important. I mean, what is really important is the ability to, to achieve this compression more efficiently. So it's a computational uh, benefit. And then it turns out that I can get out of this uh, uh, theory or analogy uh, with uh, the information bottleneck framework, many, many other uh, answer interesting questions. I mean, I can answer what each layer is actually learning in terms of features, what each layer remembers, and what each layer forgets. And, and then suddenly you, you get a, a complete description, of full, almost full understanding. I wouldn't say that it's a, it's a whole story. There are many, many open issues and many, many things and many details, but it, it suddenly makes sense. I mean, suddenly you see these many layers as something which not only uh, have roles, I mean, each layer is learning something different, but they really help each other in a very peculiar way. And they eventually converge to this optimal information bottleneck bound. So in some sense, uh, deep learning is an optimal machine uh, for learning. So this is also a very 
a very uh, you know a courageous or, or <laughs> you know a prediction, very bold prediction that I, I'm not really making. But I'm saying in some cases, or actually I, I argue this is the typical behavior. These networks are really achieving uh, the best you can do with this data. So in, in that sense, it's uh, it's really an optimal type of uh, of machine learning, and this is, I believe, why why they work so well. And then, of course, uh, it, it also gives you a very concrete answer to which type of problems uh, these deep neural networks can solve easily, and and we, what are the hard problems for this network. These are precisely the easy problems are precisely those that you can. Uh, uh, compressing something or can ignore there is some elements of redundancy there or in other way of saying it, it they are stable to noise and so if i add a little noise to an image usually it will not hurt my recognition just little noise there are some other problems that adding a very very little noise to them will immediately uh, uh, make them impossible to solve some combinatorial optimization problems and so on so so it it makes a very clear separation between the, the problems that can be learned by, by deep learning and those that can't. And there are many other predictions, I mean, uh, that I don't have time to explain, more technical predictions. I mean, so, so actually there's a class of problems which we can actually make very precise predictions analytically. I mean, by, by analytical calculations, uh, where are the layers going to be and what each one of them will then. So in some sense, those black boxes are now becoming toys, like physical models that we can solve completely analytically or, or, or exactly which which is very nice because it brings the whole the whole field into into the realm of uh, theoretical physics again and this is something which uh, i'm sure some people will uh, find amusing and, and and entertaining because it allows us to tackle many many uh, technical problems in a very precise way instead of just playing with with uh, algorithms the real challenge is of course uh, the connection with the brain itself and with learning in 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 humans or in animals, and that's of course we are just at the very beginning of this. This is whether there, there is any connection between this type of ideas and and what happens in the brain is still a very a very big open problem because obviously the brain is not implementing this type of algorithm; it's doing something else. But yeah. now we have a list a list of ideas of how the noise in the synapses in the brain can actually be used. In precisely the way that I predict happens in deep learning, by essentially allowing me to forget the irrelevant details. So yeah. I actually claim that this type of uh, learning by forgetting is really the same mechanism that happens in in cognitive and in, in biology and in humans yeah. and in in whatever. I love it. I love it. And and your explanation has has been fantastic, and I appreciate it because when I when I watched the YouTube video, I didn't get as deep uh, an understanding. And if I may, I was just my my own synapses were going crazy during the conversation, uh, and I was making all types of connections. And I was thinking, there's a few different forces that are at play. So the machines have got more power than ever before. There's been exponential growth in that area. Then data has been made available through APIs from all over the world, probably at, at the most highest level than it's ever been before made available. And machines, therefore, can learn so much quicker. And I was thinking, actually, from a learning perspective as a human, the more information we can absorb in different fields, if we can get rid of irrelevant data, 
And then we can actually make connections that we wouldn't see before because we probably have a, a finite capacity of what we can hold, what's relevant and not. And it made me think of Einstein. And there's an Einstein quote, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. But I also remember Einstein, he didn't remember his own phone number. He didn't remember what he saw as trivial information because he wanted to keep space in his brain for, for bigger thoughts. We talked before this uh, before this interview about the idea of people with Asperger's or ADHD and, and these kind of what I, what I see as gifts, that they oftentimes, going back to what you said about the voice, they they actually discard some things that, you know, make us truly human, like empathy and emotion, that they that is not that inf- inter- interesting to them. So they're actually discarding onto the information and therefore they make connections that the, a lot of the rest of us don't because we're holding on to that deeper information, like you said about the voice, that you're holding on to the accent and the, the intonation, etc. Well, they may just hone in on the, in, the information what do you make of that? that? That's just something that, that kind of dawned on me during the conversation. I want to be careful uh, because, you know, I jump from something which I hope that I more or less understand, which I described before, to something we know very little about. But, but yeah. ADHD is, is a phenomenon which is very common, and I, I completely agree with you that it has many benefits. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't survive uh, for so many, uh, you know, it's a... It's some sort of a, a, a mutation, or a, a, it's it's a problem in principle because like, we have some sort of deficiency uh, in the in, in the ability to to maintain dopamine in the frontal cortex or something like this, and we understand pretty well the mechanism. I mean, HDG, unlike uh, other things that you mentioned, I mean, dyslexia is probably a very d- different type of, uh, of of phenomena, and and uh, Asperger is certainly very different, much more complicated, or, or you know, autism in general. This spectrum uh, is is a lot more complicated. The phenomenon is probably a mixture of many different things. But ADD or ADHD, we actually pretty well understand at least the the main type of it. I mean, the the one which is uh, uh, affected by Ritalin and things like this. Uh, and this is essentially uh, some sort of a, a very very uh, fast uh, or loss of dopamine in in the frontal cortex and. Uh, Actually, dopamine is, is, is one of those uh, chemicals in, or neurotransmitters in our brain, which, is, uh, which we understand pretty well how it works and how it is related to learning. And we know that uh, dopamine is the reward signal in some cases. I mean, it's actually giving us uh, this good feeling when our expectations or our, our predictions are fulfilled. So if I'm just, you know, expect, if I put my feet on the ground and I actually hit the ground, I get this uh, little dose of dopamine in my in my cortex in my brain that tells me, okay, this was okay. And if I don't feel the ground, I get this depression or this suppression of dopamine, which tells me, ah, ah something was wrong. It's so natural that it, it's it's a very basic mechanism we use all the time, and all our learning from the very from 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 the womb on. I mean, and we we learn all our life is modulated and modified by these uh, uh, modulations of dopamine. So dopamine is a fundamental chemical in our brain, which is really giving us this global feedback of it was good to me or it was bad to me. Now, we know that in ADD or in ADHD, there is a, so this dopamine is not only responsible for the feedback, it's also responsible for maintaining, uh, keeping us on track in some sense, maintaining the goal, keep is keeping us focused. And, and ADD, uh, so we know that uh, some people 
have this uh, uh, fast absorption of dopamine in the frontal cortex, which is precisely keeping them distracted or in some sense uh, uh, they, they lose focus or any, any other stimuli, which can be vocal or, or, or visual or whatever, uh, is, is, is immediately uh, can or has at least the, the potential of taking them out of track. Everything is interesting in some sense. Now, this is, of course, a problem. I mean, if you are in an academic environment and you have to listen to a lecture and you can't focus on the lecture because every little sound uh, outside or every little uh, distracting thing is, is immediately take you off, then, 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 then you see why ADD can be a problem in our standard academic environment. There's a benefit that comes with it. So, first of all, we understand it pretty well because we know that Ritalin, for example, or this, this type of drug that we give uh, kids with ADD today, actually, when we were kids, uh, when I was a kid, this didn't exist. Nobody knew anything about it. But but now we give them this. We know that this actually blocks the absorption of dopamine in the cortex, and it immediately focuses them quite well. I mean, so in some sense, uh, there is a mechanism. We understand it, and and we see the drug or the the medicine that suppresses this effect. So this is quite well understood. But of course, this type of distraction has a lot of advantages because it's it goes immediately with curiosity. Everything is interesting. And then, of course, in order to, to, to get around it, there are ways, ways that compensate for, for this loss of concentration. First of all, you, you immediately know more about everything because everything becomes interesting. And then if you are intelligent enough, you are fast enough, you, you simply absorb a lot more information. But you do it in parallel. You don't know you do it in one track like everybody else. We learn many, many different things in small doses. So of course, as mm. children, this is a big problem. I mean, we 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 don't learn, you know, one subject at a time. We learn ten subjects together, and each of them we are very weak at the beginning. But if our memory is good, we eventually learn much more. It just takes us much longer time in each subject, but at the end, we know more. Now, I'm saying we, by the way, because I I was definitely diagnosed as an ADHD, ADHD, and so I, I started to explore it, of course. And, and some of my kids are also diagnosed with ADHD. I, I learned this phenomena from di- very different aspects. So I know exactly what the mechanism is, and I know exactly what, the, what one other benefit, by the way, is that we can compensate for the lack of dopamine by adrenaline, for example. So many ADHD people or by endorphins. I mean, if, if you do a lot of sports, for example, they're very active physically. So running uh, five kilometers every day can actually help you because it, it increases the level of, of endorphins and adrenaline or, or, or risk aversing. I mean, if you, if you like, uh, if, you, if, you, if you, you want to pump adrenaline, you really get into all sorts of, uh, of risky phenomena like uh, extreme sport or extreme, uh, or, you know, or, or, or gambling or, or many other things which are actually uh, uh, people with, with uh, attention disorders are, are really... Uh, uh, to them in some sense. I have to be careful yeah, with this. Yeah. But once you understand the, the chemical mechanism, the, everything becomes clear. And of course, as you said, it, it can go also with a lot of creativity and thinking out of the box and connecting things that other people don't connect and see, uh, as I say, in, you see the lines that others don't see simply because yeah. this type of distraction is actually giving you completely new associations. So exactly as you said about uh, this, the science that I do, I mean, connecting physics with biology and computer science is something that you can really do only with ADHD in some sense. I mean, it requires some sort of thinking in different disciplines together and making this a uh, very strange association between things.
you need help, of course, uh, in order to complete things. And so that's something that ADHD people should know very early in their life, that they have very strong cards in some aspects, but they have weak cards, uh, especially in completing uh, tasks where, where they need help. And if they, or, or they need some other, other mechanism, or other, other system that they have to invent or discover to, that help them to complete, some of them don't. But if we tell them or we talk early enough in their life how to how to compensate for this lack of ability to finish things, for example, or, or stay on time or, or deadlines, all the things. So there are many, many tricks around it, which I, I think I was lucky enough to discover early in my life. So eventually I never really suffered academically from anything. But but I knew that I learned things in very different ways than most of those, most of my friends. Yeah. yeah. And would would you mind sharing some of those Natali? Because Obviously, you've you've made some of the best, uh, huge discoveries in this area of machine learning. So obviously, you're you're doing something right. <laughs> so it'd be great no, if know. you I mean, share I, share some of those tips. Well, you know, I, I, there's luck in everything. I mean, I, I I I was simply stubborn. I mean, and I think this is part of the story. I mean, you have if you have a good idea, and even if you are the only one in the world who who believes in it, and I was. For many, many years, the only one, for example, who thought that uh, this information bottleneck is important. I mean, okay, so I, I was, you know, for many of my friends, this was a joke. But uh, I knew that there's something there out there that is waiting for you. So be stubborn. I mean, actually, so there's, you know, sometimes people with AD&D AD are really good. They're marathon runners, I mean, in some sense. They run, they run long distances. And it's actually helping them. But it's also it's also helping you mentally. I mean, if you... You have to think about your life as some sort of a really long run. So that's something which at least helps me a lot. I know that there is something out there that I see and others don't see, and I don't give up. I mean, we learn things in parallel. This actually crazy idea of learning three disciplines together, which I don't recommend to anyone, but it's, <laughs> it's no, but it's it's it helped me a lot. I mean, so I knew from very young age that I loved uh, science and I loved mathematics and I loved history and I loved philosophy. And in any one of them, I always had 10 books open in the middle near me. And I always jumped from one to the other. And I know that my parents were crazy about it. But, so none of them I read in the normal way, but reading them in parallel in something gave me something, some synergy between them. So I think I that, this, that this type of synergistic thinking and Doing it slowly, okay, take your time. It took me 30 years to encapsulate these ideas and bring them to some sort of a, a conclusion, right? These days or these years, this is a marathon run. I mean, I had to run and run against against the predictions and everybody else. Uh, I think yeah. this is something that people with ADHD are actually very good at. Yeah, I saw only the other day one of Steve Jobs' quotes, which is, he firmly believed that the difference between a successful entrepreneur and an unsuccessful one was purely perseverance. They stuck to it. And That's obviously right. he, show, he showed uh, some traits of, of ADD as well. But uh, Stubbornness if, is if a you, very important property, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've noticed that with uh, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and successful people. But um, Naftali, do you have time for a couple of more questions? Sure, I'm here. Okay, thank you. Um, You're probably going uh, to edit it and cut a lot of it out. No, no way, no way, no way. And I'll leave, I'll even leave this in to, <laughs> as proof too. We'll leave this in. This is this is all gold. I'd love to ask you about this because, you know, when you think of what you said about learning and what you said there about the, the gifts of learning, and 
and of where the world is going because obviously a lot of the work you're doing plus automation and, and a fourth industrial revolution is upon us which has gone way beyond technology means that we need to learn differently in the world yet the education system is still stuck in this rote learning stage where, where if you think about a machine it's being fed ones and zeros but it's not there's no connections going on so the our children, my children, are being taught archaic subjects in a way. And I, I fully value them learning arts, etc., and, and the classics, etc., because of what you said, where those layers that you can connect it may give you a more holistic brain or a holistic way of thinking. What are your thoughts on that, if, if you will? And if, if, if this isn't something you want to talk about, we won't. But how education needs to change for the where, where the world is going. Oh, that's a very it's a huge topic but for for just uh, you know one two minutes but but it's uh, obviously we first of all education is changing because technology is changing and and because we are now able to access individuals in in very different ways so you know instead of teaching a class with uh, 40 kids uh, all at the same time in the same pace and it's exactly have to follow the same something which never worked for me I was never able to learn with everybody else. But uh, on the other hand, I always uh, uh, took something from every lesson. So ex- now everybody can do it because you can access your, your iPad or your computer or whatever and, and repeat as many times as you want whatever you want and ignore other things. And eventually things come and, and associate together. So what we really need to change in our education is to stop thinking about everybody as one typical student. None of us are typical. We, we are all different. And allow the, the students to actually decompose or compose their own curriculum and their own way of uh, treating things. And if they want to study mathematics and philosophy and painting or, or art or, or to be in, to do sport and to do, a, a, I don't know what, a, a poetry, it, it, they should be able to do this if this is what they want. I mean, so, so in some sense, I mean, so it, we are, Education has to be a lot more flexible, and the role of teachers should mainly be inspire them and, and enable the ability to get to the information in the way that they need it. And technology is now making it possible for everyone to learn like this. I mean, I was a yeah. miserable, a miserable student in the early, in my early school years, because for most of my teachers, I was never in the class. I mean, and then they were really surprised that they, they, they woke me up out of some sort of, uh, of daydreaming. And I immediately, and I knew the answer to the question because, because I was lucky enough to get it even in. But, you know, so it was a very type of, but for some teachers, I was a terrible student. I think this is okay. I mean, this is precisely the way it should be. I mean, you should en- encourage creativity. And to encourage creativity is precisely individual creativity. Each one has to have his own set of associations between the topics and, and organize them in different ways. So forget about this fixed curriculum. That's the first lesson. The second one is really move from memorizing to, uh, to uh, instead of just memorizing facts, which we hardly do anymore. First of all, it's actually very good to know by, you know, to, to rehearse things like poetry or, or music or things like this. I mean, do, there's actually a lot of value in memorization, but you yeah. have to put it in context. I mean, so once you learn, let's say, a musical piece, I always uh, played uh, uh, the piano very early, and this is also a very important part of my life. 
So music, by the way, has a lot to do with dopamine and with uh, everything that we talked about before. The nice thing about music is the ability to associate it with other things. So if you, I mean, all our joy of music, for example, is made out of associations with other pieces. So if we don't know music, we are not going to enjoy it. So listening yeah. and rehearsing and and uh, and learning by heart and so on is actually a very important part of education. But then again, let the kids have their own their own way of associating things. So and again, and what to remember and what to forget. It's not necessarily the same thing. We we do a lot of what we call unsupervised learning in in, in machine yeah. learning, which is learning without the goal. Just create the associations freely, more or less. And then on top of it, build the supervised part. Actually, it's also part of the theory that I was talking about before for deep learning. The lower layers of the networks are doing some sort of associative associations and, and compression by similarity. And the higher layers are those that really specialize in the rule. And I really believe this is what should happen in education. The first years of our education should be more or less unsupervised in that sense. And only in the yeah. later years, we should specialize in something which we really need to do. So in that sense, there is a complete analogy between what happens in deep learning and and uh, how education should be. This is actually, by the way, is a new a new uh, insight that I I got only now through your questions, but it's all right. I see it, you see, Naftali, because when I read and I, I heard your the YouTube one of your many talks that I, that I will link to uh, on the show site, the Innovation Show dot io, but and you did you did your homework. Was, yeah, and it was that that really dawned on me. I went, you know what? There's something way, there's something really deep here for the human way of learning. And it wasn't about the brain because I don't know, I don't know anything about the brain. I've read books, like you said. I do the same thing. I have several books open at once. But uh, I just went. That's very similar to a brain. So so or how a child might learn, or how maybe you should learn because. I love that connecting something random with something else. Bear with me because I've <laughs> I have so many questions for you, and there's almost three different shows in this. But but I, I might move on because that that is fascinating. That uh, what you just told me because actually you put it so succinctly there that that I, I couldn't do it. Which is the the rules come later, and it, it makes total sense. It's, it's almost like innovation because I I saw innovation this way that you have to let people play first. You have to let them play and let them fail but then you need to then go okay now it's time to add some discipline here we found what doesn't work or we found what pieces may work now it's time to put some manners on this and, and make it happen you know and it's very similar isn't it to, to the education and to machine learning yes yes so there's actually an amazing similarity i mean something which i, I really just realized during our our conversation that that you can really take seriously those uh, those general principles and apply them to to education, to principles of behavior in different ages, to the evolution of language, to the to art, to music, uh, to the structure yeah. of music. So, so it's really uh, mind-boggling how many how many things are are linked through this uh, this line of ideas. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think we are going to complete it today, but uh, yeah, there's a lot to be done. <laughs> it's like a framework, but. Uh... One one last question was this. So, so, so with, with your phenomenal work that's going going on, you know, forty years plus. That, that your thoughts essentially is when when most people think of AI at a basic level, we think of um, a kind of a spectrum between algorithms that you may 
consume on social media where most people will consume an al- algorithm or maybe data on, on a website, et cetera, where it's reading or Netflix. And then, then you fast forward to the kind of sci-fi where, where I, I'm actually probably, people probably think I'm a bit nuts where I actually think the sci-fi stuff is, is very tangible and actually possible where, you know, movies like uh, Ex Machina or, or even the Terminator um, concept is actually feasible. But what, what, what are your thoughts on where we are on that spectrum? Like, wh- where are we with regards to uh, machine learning and, and AI controlling, you know, even corporations? And then, you know, it obviously needs the human pulling the strings, essentially. But where are we on that spectrum? Well, it's again a big question, but uh, uh, I mean, in AI, well, the whole concept of AI was really born out of, uh, you know, the, the work of Alan Turing and others that essentially realized that there's something universal about intelligence or so intelligence. I mean, it really started with uh, Turing's uh, great genius idea of uh, what we now call the universal Turing machine, which is essentially our computer. The fact that essentially all computers are one machine. I mean, that there is one machine that can do essentially everything that we call computation. And of course, during it, it was very clear that our intelligence is nothing more than a computation. And therefore, machines could be able to do anything that we do. I mean, this was a completely crazy idea in the 40s and 50s when it was first conceived, or even 30s. But uh, now we, everybody hold, is holding in his hand uh, a very powerful computer which is millions of times stronger than anything that Turing had in his life, and and mm. uh, and we don't even uh, we don't even realize that this we are actually holding a Turing machine, you're holding the same universal computer in in our palm in in our smartphones all the time. So, so and and this, this because it's universal, we can do with it so many different things like you know taking pictures and recording voice and text and and whatever. So there there is something AI in in everything that we do now. The, the the other aspect of AI is of course the imagination of uh, of films and uh, and and Hollywood, which really takes us in a very bizarre direction sometimes. But sometimes they're actually dictating the way we go. I mean, so so you know when we see a movie like Ex Machina, we we think okay that's crazy. I mean, but what what we all know, I mean, those who are actually living in this field of AI, that that machines that develop emotions is are actually already here i mean it's not it's not that far away this is uh, this actually is a lot easier than solving some of those uh, simpler problems like walking and seeing and uh, behaving and holding a, a, a cup of tea you know without spilling it <laughs> that's actually hard but developing yeah. emotions is not that hard and and uh, and and uh, and uh, essentially in some sense the emotions are in us, not in the machine. I mean, so uh, it's it's really a, a, an interaction between uh, two different uh, entities. That one of them, at least, is a human, and then we attribute our uh, emotions to computers very easily. I mean, they make me, they annoy me, they angry me, they they. <laughs> like but it's my emotions, yeah. not his emotion. But the fact that yeah. the machine can learn to evoke my these responses, this is very easy. So and and you attribute emotions to machine. This is easy, and this is happening in front of us. The the big fear of AI, which I think is 
is exaggerated, of course, uh, uh, but but is real. I mean, I can definitely understand. I see the fear. I mean that that at some point those they they, they we lose control over over the machines, and and they will uh, do what they want, not we want, yeah. <laughs> not what we want, and 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 that's uh, and that's a danger that I mean I I don't see it any anywhere near. By the way, but but in principle we can already design machines which are autonomous to such an extent that uh, the fear is real. I mean, talking about autonomous driving or autonomous uh, airplanes or whatever, once they make decisions, I mean, so the, what I see the next evolution of AI is not machine learning, but some people call it machine creativity. Essentially, they, they should, when they form their own concepts and, and make their own hypothesis about the world, I mean, in some sense, uh, learning is about hypothesis, hypothesis and testing. I mean, and it, what we do is making hypotheses or guesses about about phenomena, about the future mainly, and then we check it. And if it's correct, we we adopt it. And if it's incorrect, we modify it, and so on. So it's this is the way science works, but it's also the way, very much the way our brain works. I mean, we, we are all working like a scientist in some sense, even those who, who despise science. Do it. So, in some sense, this ability to 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 hypothesize, to make new, to be creative in the sense of making new new guesses about the behavior of the world around us, and test it. I mean, so once a machine will be independent in the sense of making new hypotheses and then try to optimize some other types of of goals, uh, this is this is exactly the borderline which we we may cross actually very soon. And and yeah. the only way I see around it is is not to fight it, but to but to collaborate with it. I mean, so we should get into some sort of symbiosis with with AI or with artificial, as we actually do now. I mean, we are all in some sort of symbiosis with the intelligent, but with the network, with the with the smartphones, with the internet. Some, and I don't really see the the big problem with being connected to the internet permanently. In some sense, or being extending my memory and my associations beyond my own brain. This is a fantasy yeah. that a lot, a lot of us are playing with. I think that's the only thing that will save humans is essentially, or humanity even, is is not to fight it, but but to evolve with it. And yeah. and the, those of us who, who will refuse to do it will, will you know, will have a, a different branch of evolution. I mean, this is a, this is not. Some of us will. Play with with this technology and go with it and be part of it and and evolve with it as I said I mean become cyborgs in some sense and some will not and will become different species after several generations who knows but okay yeah. so so the future can be scary but it's also very very promising one thing we'll have to enable is somehow uh, is, is suppress our fears and our you know, I, I don't want to get into in other things uh, like religions and things like this because it's all up there in the air. But, but we have to, instead of being motivated by fear, we have to be motivated by hope and by, by intelligence. I mean, and that's something yeah. not terribly common these days, I'm afraid. So me with children, so I have young children, uh, four and seven. What, what, what should they be studying? So I've taken a lot from what you said, early days, it's creativity, and I, I often think of this idea where, you know, it's like you give them, they're, they're like um, 
bees and they and you give them lots of different flowers to fly around and and then when you notice that they really like a certain variety you you give them more of that and you encourage that and then I loved what you said then later on you give them rules about that so they can actually focus and when they once they've found something but what kind of advice would you give like even people coming out of college what are going into college what what should they be studying what kind of things and I know you've had a vast array of disciplines and, and, and well, you know it's, it's, it's you're, you're, you're challenging me uh, i mean <laughs> college education is very different from uh, what we talked about earlier i mean i was talking about really kindergarten and early oh for early sure yeah yeah when i said that everything should be as much as possible unsupervised let them yeah, form yeah. their associations now if they actually do this by the time they get to college they should have a very clear uh, view of what is it they want to do I mean, it, yeah. at least this was the case with me. I mean, I, well, I knew that I wanted to, do, to study physics and math from very early in high school. And, but I also knew that I want to study music and I also knew that I want to, to study uh, art in many ways and philosophy and who knows what. Uh, so, so it's, it's and, and I, I, the problem is that college never labeled it. But at that time, at least it was impossible. So I think that college as well should be a lot more flexible in terms of combination. But on the other hand, college is the time where you really which you should master something. We should really become an expert in a, in a discipline. I mean, you should you should learn the methodology of one field. So, so actually, I usually recommend uh, people to learn to take not to learn multidisciplinary programs in the undergraduate level. Uh, I mean, they should have this creative mind formed at home during their early childhood by other things. But they, when they yeah. come to college, I really want them to to master a discipline. I mean, that's something which I, I believe is actually very, you have to be very, it's a very disciplinary type of study. I mean, like studying three years of physics is hard, okay? But it's, it's, it gives you a, so, so, much, so many powerful tools that if I had to spread this, as I said before, on many, much more years, many more years, and, 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 and studying parallel other things, this could never happen. So actually, in, in the level of college, I really believe that at least the undergraduate studies should give you, should give you uh, some you know, powerful machinery or methodologies. And then open it up again in, uh, as a graduate student if you have the time for that. But of course, it depends. Some people do it already in high school. And, then, and, and actually, some, many come to college with no idea what they want to study because nobody ever let them think about it. It's, everything yeah. was structured. Everything was, you know, they were tunneled into 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 very specific, you know, courses and directions. I, I see a lot of young kids. I mean, when they finish high school, and then they have to they have to go to college because everybody has to go to college, at least around where, where I am. And and, uh, and at least that's what they think they must do after they do the mandatory tour of the world. Never mind. So uh, <laughs> so 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 that's. Uh, and then they suddenly realize, what is it that I want to study? And they look at yeah. the curriculums and courses of many, and they have no idea what it is, because they never really had the chance to think for themselves what they are good at and what they like and what they want to do. I mean, and that should happen a lot earlier. Yeah. And when you get to college, you should already know what is it that you want to be specialized to specialize in, and how things and. And I, I, so I don't have any problem with an undergraduate kid who comes to me and tells me, I want to study the brain. What should I, 
and I tell him, go, go and study physics, and he looks at me, how, how is it connected? Then look, start with this because this is the hardest part, <laughs> and the rest you can fall, fill up later. I know it, it sounds a little like, crazy, but not everybody is for studying physics. But uh, actually, I think that biology is something you can learn later here. It's a lot of facts. And in, 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 order, in order to learn, you know, to have the analytic tools, you have to study them as early as you can. Because once you, yeah. you have these tools in your hands, you can break walls with them. But, if, but studying very late is, is, is not a good idea. I mean, so I really believe that those who at least are scientifically oriented should start with it, with acquiring, sharpening the tools, as I say, very early. Just as you know, if you become a musician, you shouldn't start playing an instrument with your 20s, not going to help you. Uh, there are things that you have to study, some skills, you know, that you have to acquire early. So it sounds like a contradiction to what I said before. How can you acquire skills, be disciplined, and sometimes be open-minded and, and, and multidisciplinary? So there are yeah. times for everything here. I mean, elementary school was completely crazy. I did what I wanted, and I was completely drawn by my own interests in many different directions. When I got to the end of high school and the early university, I, I knew exactly what it is that I want to study. And I was, but it was still, again, in a fishing expedition. I always looked for new problems and, and new frontiers. But, you know, not everybody is like that, and I don't think this is the rule that, but, you know, I think it can work for many of us to be, to be disciplined and still open-minded. I mean, that's, that's hard, yeah, but that's what we need to do. Naftali, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and we really enjoyed having you on the show. It was a real pleasure, I must tell you. It was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever had. Thank oh, you thank much. you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much.